it's good to be here. Um, Saul, we're, we're continuing our, uh, our study through 1 Samuel, and uh, by way of reminder, as we're making our way through this book, we're considering this theme of lessons for the kingdom for today, things that God has to show us uh, from ancient times in his working in and through his people today in our present experience of following Jesus Christ. Saul has been thrust from obscurity into the spotlight following his rallying of the armies of Israel to battle against the Ammonites of Jabesh-Gilead. It was really a shining moment for Saul, and we kind of wish that he had more, but that was was about it. That's all we can squeeze out of Saul's uh, trust in the Lord. Well, Last week, Pastor Steve took us through chapter 12, where Samuel offers a rebuke to the people. Um, Maybe he saw what was coming, or likely just knew that this path of being ruled by a king, it was going to bring trouble for Israel. Well, as he corrected them, they, they grieved, and they asked that he would pray for them, and Samuel's words in response are powerful. Uh, He challenges them not to give up on following and serving God because he hasn't given up, the Lord hasn't given up on them. But he warns them in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. And I I think this is a word that that we can take as well as we read it. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. It's such a good word and promise for God's people, and and one that still applies again today. God won't forsake you. Fear him, serve him. He's done so many great things for you and I, but don't take sin lightly. Whatsoever a man reaps, that will he also sow. And how we need to pray for one another when we're doing well, and especially so when we're struggling. But since that day, Israel now finds herself being tested again by her enemies. It's not unlike the Christian life and experience. We may enjoy seasons of peace and rest, but there's there's always another battle around the corner. And, And you might... Remember, we talked quite a bit about that back in chapter 11, the spiritual warfare that we face and the weapons that we've been given. He'd, uh, how important it is that we rely on those tools, not our own understanding and strength. Now, sadly, Saul has forgotten uh, the humility, patience, and reliance on the Lord and others that he'd learned when he first became King, he, he's drifted from those most important lessons. And the price that he's going to pay for that is going to be very high. 
This morning, we're looking again at chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 23. Our message is titled, Pride Goes Before. And most of you will remember that proverb, chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is one of our, our number one adversaries in this life. It sets us up for so many problems, and among other things, it's a huge problem for Saul. As we were, as we were worshiping, this is, this is painful for me. You know, I, I usually like to use my ups and downs, and I kind of, I can't go high. I just kind of have to keep it like, uh, it's kind of boring preaching. But as I was not worshiping, but worshiping earlier, kind of trying to be with what the Lord was doing. And I was thinking, man, this is tough for, you know, a, a preacher. You, you take away his voice, and um, I, I guess the stuff that really matters is what's left. So uh, we'll, we'll get to rely on the Lord, but it's, it's humbling, right? Well, humility and, and God bringing those kinds of experiences into our lives, we find that they're actually a great safeguard against terrible failure in our lives. Pride, unchecked, um, can really be our undoing. And we see that in Saul's, in his life, and uh, in the work that God had called him to. Well, this bull has killed me. So said Jose Cubero, one of, not Jose Cuervo, but Jose Cubero, one of Spain's most brilliant matadors before he lost consciousness and died. Two weeks ago, my message, remember the title was uh, The Moment of Truth, and we talked about how that line actually came from bullfighting. I don't know why we're doing two bullfighting illustrations, but anyway, it turned out that way. He, his, with his last breath, he cried out, uh, the bull, this bull has killed me. And, and though surprising, um, dying during bullfighting is relatively uncommon. Uh, up until that point in 1985, uh, this man, Cubero, he was one of only 11 bullfighters who had died in the entire century. But author Craig Larson writes that only 21 years old, he had been enjoying a spectacular career. However, in that 1985 bullfight, Jose made a tragic mistake. He thrust his sword a final time into the bleeding, delirious bull, which then collapsed. By the way, I, I realize this illustration is probably, uh, you're, you're, you might be horrified because of the injustices. I'm, I'm sorry. It was from a long time ago, and um, uh, the bull is resting now. Anyway, considering... The final, uh, the struggle finished. He, he thrust his sword a final time in the bleeding, delirious bull, which then collapsed. Jose turned to the crowd to acknowledge the applause. Everyone was cheering for him as he'd won the day. He turned with his back to the bull. The bull, however, was not dead. It rose and lunged at the unsuspecting matador, its horn piercing his back and puncturing his heart. Carson continues and makes the point that just when we think we've finished off pride, just when we turn to accept the congratulations of the crowd, pride stabs us in the back. We should never cons consider pride dead until we are. Saul may not have understood this, but you and I can. Uh, although he's missed the lessons that the Lord has for him, they're right there for us to grab hold of. 
Now, as we begin, we'll start reading uh, the first couple of verses which serve as an introduction. Verse 1. Let's pray before we make our way into it, though. Father, as we open your word this morning, Lord, speaking to this subject of pride, we ask that you would probe those areas in our lives, God, in which we may be prone, Lord, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Lord, where we're perhaps tempted to listen to the cheers of the crowd or our own flesh and, and abandon, Lord, that, that station of humility that you've graciously brought us to. Father, may we learn and hear and receive those things you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Now, as we get started, I'd like to speak to verse 1, which reads a little awkwardly, and there's a reason for that. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, and we move on into verse 2. And if you have the New International Version, you know that it reads, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years, which is pretty different. The problem lies in the manuscript, the copy of the original or the autograph from which it's translated from which this verse is translated. It appears that in the copying, a word or two were accidentally dropped by an ancient scribe, which happened but was fairly uncommon. The original text would have been flawless and inerrant, but the actual Hebrew text available to us, it doesn't include the words 30 or 40. The translators actually inserted that based on some other passages and assumptions about Saul's age at the time and the length of his eventual rule as king. It literally would read, Saul was son of a year when he became king and he reigned over Israel and two years. There's there's words that have been dropped. And actually the Septuagint, the copy of the Hebrew Bible that Jesus would have had access to, did not even include verse 1 as some ancient manuscripts didn't even have it. The bottom line is, it's difficult to understand exactly what's being said in verse 1 because it's incomplete. So we're actually not going to worry about it. and, but now you are because I've put it in your head. So, you know, we'll just try to move on from there. But it's one of a few examples of verses in the scriptures where there's been some sort of uh, error of some part, not in the original, as God communicated it the first time, but in later copying. And in virtually every instance where this is the case, we find that there's no impact on doctrine or theology or anything of substance. And so we can comfortably um, move on. Now, verse 2 tells us, following the battle with the Ammonites at Jabesh-Gilead, Saul has established a company of 3,000 soldiers. And this appears to be a, a sort of a royal guard as the number is relatively small. Um, 2,000 remained with him in Michmash, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, the king's son, who we're going to start to get to know a little bit. Briefly, where are we? Well, Michmash 
in, in the mountains of Bethel. That's about 10 miles west of the city of Jericho. There in the south, above the Dead Sea, um, uh, near the Jordan River, in, in the Jordan Plain, as it's called. Gibeah of Benjamin is not far from there. It's about a mile south of Michmash. And incidentally, Saul was from Gibeah, and that would become the capital of Israel until, as you probably know, David would become king. He had to conquer the Jebusites, and then they took Jerusalem, which became Israel's eternal capital. Well, these two armies, commanded by Saul and his son Jonathan, they're very near to one another. And the rest of the soldiers were sent to their tents, as we just read. We're not exactly sure where they are, but they're essentially on standby. And in these next few verses now, we'll get to know Saul's son, Jonathan. Verses 3 through 7, attack and retreat. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, which incidentally has been found by archaeologists. You can go there today, climb the mountain that's there, and find the ruins of, uh, of this um, fortification that would have housed the Gif, the Philistine garrison, and I believe later Saul rebuilt it once it was taken. But uh, the Philistines, they heard of it, that Jonathan made this incursion against Geba. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And as for Saul, he was in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Wow. We're not told why Jonathan uh, initiated this attack against the Philistines in, uh, in Geba, which is in between Gibeah and Michmash, where um, those uh, Saul and Jonathan's armies were, uh, but a little closer to Michmash. Um, we're not told exactly why he did this. It may simply be that this was Israel. <laughs> this is the land of promise. This was their home, not the home of the Philistines. Uh, they, they, of course, lived down further south. They had five cities along the coast. But this was one of those times uh, when they were coming against the children of Israel after they'd come into the land. And Jonathan knew that he had to do something about it. Jonathan believed the promises of God and wanted to act on them. Remember, the Lord had told Joshua in chapter 1, verse 3 of that book, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. No doubt Jonathan knew and understood that God had already guaranteed Israel's victory, had already given them the land. They simply needed to to step into that victory to push the enemy back. He recognized that they needed to step into God's promises, to walk where he'd already promised them the victory, stand in the truth that was theirs. I think that's true for you and I sometimes as well. 
We, we need to simply appropriate what is already ours. We need to act and live as if it's true because it is. Interestingly, Jonathan is confident, but in the Lord. What we find is that his father, Saul, is also confident, but in himself. And there's a significant dangerous difference between the two. Now, in verse 3, we learn that Saul blows a trumpet and, and has it announced, let the Hebrews hear. And what they hear is that Saul had attacked the Philistines. Well, actually, we just read it was his son, Jonathan. But Saul very quickly devolved into that kind of leader that was looking to take the credit for himself, looking to be the center of attention. Either way, the nation has been alerted to the need to fight again, and those that had returned to their tents are now rallying to the call to join, to join the battle, and so they gathered to Saul at Gilgal. And of course, meanwhile, the Philistines were rallying. Saul and Jonathan together had their army of 3,000, and uh, the Philistines had quite a bit more. They had 30,000 chariots. They had 6,000 horsemen, and, and it reads that they had as many soldiers, foot soldiers, as uh, the, the sand on the seashore kind of a thing, unnumbered. Israel is, is really hopelessly outnumbered at this point. These odds are not good. Israel knew it, and how did they react? Well, it's kind of funny when you read it. You just sort of imagine all these, you know, Israelites jumping into bushes and, you know, caves and scrambling over the border. They're going every direction they can. They're like, we got to get out of Dodge. The people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits. It, Israel, the great people of faith, trusting in the Lord and, you know, the first sight of an enemy. And they're like, all right, we'll, we'll be back when things cool down. Yeah. Now, some of you will remember in chapter 10 when Saul was anointed by Samuel as king, Samuel prophesied several things over him that would, would take place in pretty um, fairly quick succession. And one of them was that Saul was to go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel for one week. First Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. And in Gilgal is where we find Saul. That's exactly where he is, waiting, sort of. This brings us to verses 8 through 14, the importance of waiting. Verse 8, then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offerings. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to him, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom, the kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. 
The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord had commanded, has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Basically, Saul blew it. He got ahead of the Lord, presumed authority that wasn't his, and was exposed as a self-willed man, the antithesis of what God wanted in a king. And so he would be the last in his family to rule. It's, it's sad. Saul was only uh, was doing well just such a short while ago. He was walking in humility and dependence on God. He'd forgotten. We need and we shouldn't be offended by reminders. Are you ever offended when you're reminded of something maybe basic? Maybe something that you already know. Maybe something that you would say, I've got that dialed in. I, I can be offended that way. It, it strikes at my pride. When, when somebody maybe says something that, that I would say in response, well, I know that. You don't have to tell me. I can't, I can't. <laughs> Any man who's, okay, well, I guess we're not all this way, but some of us driving in the car. I, I'm terrible at directions. You've probably heard me say this before, and I sometimes, I almost say, oh, always, that would be a lie. Probably shouldn't do that on a Sunday morning when God's already got me in a place where I'm barely able to talk. Um, I struggle with directions, okay? And I, I know that. And sometimes I acknowledge it and I'll kind of just, you know, say to my wife, where are we going? Tell me. And then other times she'll remind me of things and I get, oh, I know that. I knew that. You don't have to tell me that. I'm also mildly dyslexic, so sometimes turn right. I am turning right and I'm actually turning left. And that, you know, becomes an issue. Yeah, it's a thing. We need reminders and we need to be okay with receiving reminders. We shouldn't be offended by them. Peter wrote in his second epistle, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Are we willing to learn again, to be reminded, walk through those lessons that maybe we, we've already learned once before? Maybe we think, well, I'm doing pretty good with that. There's, there's health as, as believers in willing to learn again and willing to be reminded of things that may seem basic but are vital. We need to be careful about dismissing information, truth that we're already familiar with. Years ago, I heard a pastor uh, share, your greatest strength unguarded is your greatest weakness. Saul quickly drifted from the foundation that the Lord had laid for him. Uh, by God, which, which would have assured a blessed and a lengthy rule. If Saul had kept going forward from that same place of humility, of, of um, dependence on God, partnership with Samuel, he would have been blessed. But, but he, he chose to walk away from that. Saul became impatient. Samuel was a little late and people were starting to notice. We read in verse 8, the people were scattered from him. Those are the moments uh, when it's especially hard to trust God and wait, isn't it? It's one thing when you're enduring a trial on your own, and that's hard enough, especially when the deadline has passed. And you're, you're looking at the clock going, Lord, it was due midnight, and now it's midnight and change. What am I supposed to do here? 
that's bad enough. But when you have other people around you, maybe that you're leading or that are depending on you, and they're looking at you, questioning, or maybe they're already starting to walk away saying, I'm out. This clearly, clearly, this is not working. And I don't know who you're hearing from, but it's not the Lord. It's difficult to continue to trust the Lord in those places, isn't it? Those are the times when it's especially important that we trust God and wait. That's where faith grows. It's in the valley of the shadow of death that we learn to rely on the good shepherd of our soul to, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, walk by faith, not by sight. It's a choice, it's a choice to rely on and obey the promises of God despite what we feel and even and, and perhaps especially against what we can see. It's recognizing and walking in the reality that God will be faithful to his word, that he's looking for us to trust him, to believe him. We can't be guided through the darkness, through times of feeling lost or abandoned by what we can see, by our emotions, but instead by a steadfast trust in the Lord and in his promises do we believe that he'll be faithful or not? Do we trust in his word or not? Not just the promises that we like to remember, the ones that they put in those you know, little Bible promise books, but, but the hard ones too. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. You, you know his exchange there with the Lord over his weakness, recognizing God's, God's answer, his solution to Paul was, my power is made perfect in weakness. I think of Jesus and his interaction with the, the Father at the, at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration, talking about his son who was afflicted by a demon. And Jesus asked him, do you believe? And he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's where we need to go in our times of struggle, not leaning on our own understanding, not trying to charge ahead and fix it ourselves and make matters worse. Saul refused. He refused to wait to see God work. He instead uh, insisted on, on taking things into his own hands, a, a dangerous and damaging tendency. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring an offering a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel, did you, did you hear that? As soon as he had finished disobeying the Lord, then the answer came. Anybody been there? You ever had that experience before? Like all the, the phone rings two seconds after you blow it and get ahead of the Lord. The, the thing comes in the mail. The, the resolution arrives but you, 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 you've spoiled it. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the bird offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Now some of us might be reading this or listening thinking, well, what's the big deal? What did, what did Saul do that was so wrong? It sounds to me like he was worshiping the Lord. Well, the problem was that Saul was called to be king, not priest. 
This was a separate and special calling, and the law was clear. Numbers uh, chapter 18, verse 6. Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil you shall and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. If you've read it and if you've read and studied the law of God, you know that there were all kinds of very clear and specific parameters around the worship that took place there at the tabernacle and later the temple, and and who was to touch and interact with the various implements that were set apart for worship. The priesthood itself was set apart, and it wasn't for just anyone to take upon themselves. That was a violation of God's clear instruction because the very nature of the priesthood spoke to the holiness of God, that he was different and separate from a sinful people. And so the only ones who were to approach and worship were those that understood that and were set apart themselves and, and followed very specific and rigid instruction. For Saul to simply take this upon himself was saying, <laughs> I almost thought of a, a present-day colloquialism, but it's slightly offensive, so we'll move on. But uh, Saul, it has something to do with hold my beer. But anyway, um, that probably wasn't helpful. Saul basically says, Lord, I've got this. You just step aside. And, uh, and I'll move in and handle this situation. Don't worry, I got it under control. Clearly, you're not able to handle this problem, but I can. That's what Saul is saying. Look at that. I said I wasn't going to say it. I did anyway. And people are thinking, why are we listening to this guy? I don't know. <sighs> Only the priests were to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And one happened to be on the way, which Saul knew. Samuel had already said that he was coming taking up this role and responsibility. It wasn't something that, that a man was to do on his own, not even the king. He didn't have that authority. No one was to be above the law of God. And to do so was the height of arrogance. It was an affront to the very idea that God himself was the one and the only one that called uh, men into service and ordained them for specific holy tasks Saul was acting as though he was God. Whenever we set ourselves above the word of God, whenever we elevate our opinion above scripture, we're doing the same thing. We're making ourselves the authority and we're diminishing God. We see it all the time. I see it all the time. I'm assuming you do too. Men and women that are, are proposing to follow Jesus Christ, but when they come up against something that's harder than they're comfortable with, more difficult than they can manage, and, and they're tired of waiting for God to come and <clears throat> provide the solution, the answer that he's promised to, and they step outside of, of God's clearly revealed will and, and start to sort of, as we say, make it up as they go, excusing their sin. We make ourselves the authority and we diminish God's authority. It's a dangerous place to be. One commentator I asked, Rad, 
uh, excuse me, one commentator I read asked, uh, can there be any devotion in disobedience? That's powerful and convicting. Verse 10 reads that Saul went out to meet him, Samuel that is, that he might greet him. And it actually means that he, he went out to bless him. Imagine the picture. The king is leading the people and he says, well, God hasn't shown up yet. I'm just going to take care of this myself. Offers the sacrifice, which according to the law, he knew was a, a violation. And then as Samuel comes up, he's feeling pretty good. He's like, man, I just offered the sacrifice. We're going to go and have a victory. Here comes the prophet. He was running late. You know, you could probably use a blessing. And I, I'm pretty, you know, tight with the Lord. And uh, I, I just offered a sacrifice. Now, you and me, you know, we're both kind of like priests, right, Samuel? You and me, we're good. And, and he, like, walks over and wants to bless him as though, you remember in Scripture, it's the greater that blesses the lesser. Saul's opinion of himself is dangerously inflated. He needed to be in a place of contrition and repentance. And instead, he, he's, he's, <laughs> he's a mess. Again, maybe you can relate to this. You're at your wit's end. You've given up believing God would come through. And the minute after you sin, the answer you'd been waiting for comes. There's a couple of things we should learn from that. One is, when we're most discouraged and tempted to give up, we shouldn't. Because chances are God is about to do something. And either way, he's going to be faithful to his word and his promises to us. But the enemy, he does tend to intensify his attacks right towards the end, doesn't he? Have you walked through this before? It's almost as though he's able to maybe not, he can't see the future, but maybe a little bit further around the corner than our vantage point is allowing. And, and the goal is, man, if I can just knock them off their feet right before God works. If I can just wreck their faith, that would be so awesome. And that's, that's what he works towards. Secondly, we have to learn to exercise the discipline to choose to obey even when it's hard. We have to decide that ahead of time, not when the pressure's on because it's extremely difficult to make the decision then. We have to purpose ahead of time. No, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you even when it gets hard. We can't reserve disobedience as a backup plan. That has to be abandoned. And Samuel's response to all of this, Saul's response, excuse me, King Saul's response is an excuse. What do any of us do when we're caught getting ahead of the Lord, stepping outside of his plan because of our impatience and lack of faith? It was the woman you gave me. That was the first instance, right? We're, we've always got a reason and someone or something to blame. Verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, Samuel, you were supposed to be here and you didn't show up. So really, if there's anybody to blame, it's kind of you, all right? Samuel's like, mm-hmm. And that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. And then I said, the Philistines will now come down upon me, will now come on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplications to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. <laughs> Pardon me one moment. Thank you. Verse 12 <clears throat> 
it really didn't make a difference, did it? Anyway, <laughs> I feel a little better. Verse 12, it reads almost a little bit like we saw earlier in the book of First Samuel. Remember, the battle was not going well against Israel's enemies. And they said, well, let's call for the Ark of the Covenant. Let's bring it up into the battle, and then we'll win. They started to treat holy things like idols because they drifted from true and real dependency on God, not to mention the fact that the priests were corrupt and, and a mess themselves. Saul is treating prayer almost in the same way, like some kind of good luck ritual. Well, I've got to go to battle, and I had to pray, and somebody had to do it, and you weren't here, so I just decided I would do it. Well, there is another option. There's continuing to wait on the Lord, which if you might remember, that was what, that was what the situation called for back some chapters ago when Samuel had anointed him as king and told him to wait, to wait at Gilgal. We should know that there are going to be not a few, but many times in our walk with Christ when, when the very thing that we're supposed to do, it's going to look like nothing to a lot of people that are, that are watching and, and are assessing our leadership or our ability to trust God. Well, aren't you going to do anything? Aren't you going to take action? <clears throat> we need to wait on the Lord. That's not an excuse to do nothing. Obviously, there comes a time when you've got to engage in the battle, but don't fight. Don't fight until you've prayed. Don't fight until you've waited on the Lord. Saul was getting ahead of God. What happens when we don't? Remember Abraham and Sarah? <laughs> God had promised them a son, but the son didn't come in time, or so they felt. And, and Sarai came up at the time. Of course, her name was Sarai, and Abraham was still Abram. God hadn't changed their names yet. She came up with a brilliant plan. <laughs> I know we'll help God out. Does it, does it really help when we help God out? It, it doesn't. We need to be careful of that. Guard against getting ahead of the Lord in that way. God calls you and I to trust his word, to be still and wait in obedience. We greatly underestimate just how important patient, faith-filled obedience is to God and how absolutely key it is to maturity and victory in the Christian life. It doesn't sell real well, does it? <laughs> What's this little scratchy-voiced guy trying to tell me? Patient, faith-filled obedience. Those are all, like, not fun things. None of them get me excited. None of them make me want to go for my cup of coffee and leap into the day, you know, living my best life. Patience, I have to wait. Faith, I have to trust even though I can't see and be filled with it and then obey. But what about me? What about what I want? Doesn't God, doesn't God want me to be happy? And no, he wants you to be holy, and he wants you to trust him. Happiness comes when you do those things, when you exercise patient, faith-filled obedience, but newsflash, this whole Jesus thing, this whole Calvary deal, it wasn't, it wasn't so you could, you know, write a book and, you know, get a house on a hill and put your feet up and everything's cool. So you could be saved from the just penalty for your sins so that your citizen could, citizenship could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness from hell 
to the kingdom of light, heaven. It's so that you could be an ambassador for the kingdom of God, that you might bring him glory through your life. See, he's about changing us, transforming our lives. And of necessity, we should expect that process to involve some pain, to grate against our flesh. Because unfortunately, most of us, well, we should be, but we're, we're not like Plato. We're, we're like, you know, you remember when you had kids or grandkids or you've got them still and uh, Plato, they, 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 they leave it out, right? And I, I was one of the, I like to you know, keep the, I was going to say flavors. I'm giving away things I shouldn't say. The, the colors. I didn't eat Play-Doh. Maybe I did. I don't know. You keep the colors separate. But then if you leave the lid open a little bit, it gets, it gets dried out and hard, doesn't it? It's not as pliable. Sometimes, sometimes that's a good description of our lives. We want to stay soft and flexible. But we shouldn't be surprised when the process is painful. It's difficult. Because God is changing us from who we are into who he wants us to be. Now, Samuel's rebuke to Saul is strong. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul was unable to fulfill the most basic requirement of one who would be used by God, obedience. Because Saul could not be trusted because of his self-will, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And he's still looking for men and women like that today. I love the word from 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It comes actually in the midst of a rebuke against King Asa, who was away from God and rebelling against him. And the Lord said, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal, fully committed to him. God is still looking for men and women like that today. To find, to find someone who would say, Lord, my heart is yours. Not perfect, not doing everything right all the time, but not self-willed, not insisting on having it our way, but instead living in that surrendered place, saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Now, briefly, let's read through these final nine verses and consider some closing thoughts. Missing a few things is our final point. Verse 15 because we're going to find Israel and the, and the king are missing uh, several things that they desperately needed. Then Saul, excuse me, then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah at Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah at Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road on the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. And then the author adds, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim, that's two-thirds of a shekel, which was a weight, 
uh, for the metal that they were uh, buying and selling with at the time. For the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. Those were all farming tools uh, which had to double as weapons for the children of Israel. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan and his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. They're missing a few things. <laughs> Israel's armies virtually have no weapons because the Philistines enforced an intentional monopoly on blacksmithing. But more importantly than Israel's lack of weapons is Saul's absent humility and repentance, which were essential for an effective king. After Samuel's stinging rebuke, uh, Saul seemingly moves on. We don't read any response. Saul evidently goes about his business, and that's a problem. Beyond their lack of weaponry, they were also outnumbered. Without God, this was a problem. But with the Lord, they would be victorious. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, understood this, and we're going to see that in next week's verses. Israel needed a king who would wait on and seek God, God's protection and provision, but they had Saul, a man who was proud, self-confident, and unbroken. He'd remembered, had he remembered those lessons and experiences from earlier, he could have been great. How important an ongoing experience of humility is in the Christian life. I appreciate this story. I ran across a couple of years ago. Maybe uh, Pastor Frankie and the worship team can join us and we can prepare to close our time. But William Temple writes, humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself one way or the other at all. At a reception honoring philanthropist and musician Sir Robert Mayer on his 100th birthday, elderly British socialite Lady Diana Cooper fell into conversation with a friendly woman who seemed to know her well. Lady Diana's failing eyesight prevented her from recognizing her fellow guest until she peered more closely at the magnificent diamonds and realized that she was talking to Queen Elizabeth. Overcome with embarrassment, Lady Diana curtsied and stammered, Ma'am, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, ma'am, I didn't recognize you without your crown. The queen replied, It was so much Sir Robert's evening that I decided to leave it behind. Are you and I willing to leave our crowns behind? To humble ourselves that our Lord might take his rightful place over our lives? our decisions, the humility to repent, to honor others before ourselves, to embrace the opportunities that God gives us to, instead of reinforcing our pride and position, to humble ourselves, to see that, that through those painful experiences, God may well actually intend to do something far greater through us than we imagine. It's recognizing that his ways are not our ways. That he simply knows more than we do. And he's asked us to follow in faith-filled obedience. That is our calling. Let's pray. Father, Lord, for your word, we thank you. 
And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to apply by faith those things that you're showing us, Lord. Maybe we've been guilty of getting ahead of you, Lord, when the answer has been late. Maybe we're tempted to do that now. Lord, each of us knows that, that walking in faith and humility, Lord, it's not easy. God, would you equip us by your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to trust you? God, would you help us to trust your word over our feelings, over our opinions, over what we can see? God, we want to choose to be people, men and women, who trust you, who humble ourselves, who lay our crowns aside. Lord, that the focus, that the glory might be yours. God, that we would maintain hearts of servants. Those that would say to you, here am I, send me, Lord, wherever the direction, whatever the circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.